Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, defining cyber skills is the beginning of the workforce improvement effort, not the end. It's an evolving field, right? So you're never done. I mean, this thing isn't stopped. Uh, but I, I, I think they've done a nice job of, of getting a comprehensive framework in place. And now it's a question of continuing to evolve that framework. Reading the data for Intel on remote work. Did it tell us that certain functions actually work better if they're done remotely? Uh, or did it tell us that it's impossible, almost impossible, to do certain things? And focusing on the right stuff in your tech transformation. With the new technology, you always think it's technical hurdles, but it's really focus on the business, focus on the customer, focus on the outcomes. It's Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A note, the 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia are offering lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. An organization inside the National Institute of Standards and Technology has a list of 52 different defined cybersecurity roles. Those definitions could be a big step to government and industry cooperation to build the cyber workforce. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security and the Internal Revenue Service, and he's author of Success in the Technology Field, A Guide to Advancing Your Career. Richard, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You're also a co-chair of the National Initiative on Cybersecurity Education. What is it, besides being nice, see what I did there, <laughs> and, and what's the mission of this organization? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. And I'm, I'm uh, very enthused to be involved with the, the NICE organization. And this was really chartered by Congress to, um, to deal with the issues that we face and uh, the shortages we have in cybersecurity expertise, really across, of course, the U.S., but really the world. And um, I've just been so impressed with the work that NIST has done in, in working with industry and uh, with academia on, on defining these 52 different roles. And uh, by definition, what we really mean is, is the competencies you need for a role in cybersecurity and really the skills and abilities that you should have uh, to be able to carry out a particular role, whether it be in cybersecurity forensics or in risk management, uh, or even in some of the, let's say, non-technical roles around some of the legal aspects that, that you get into in cybersecurity. How finely were you able to slice these, Richard? How different is number 51 from number 52, to, for example? Well, I, I mean, let me, let me say, uh, people ask, go, well, 52 is a lot, right? <laughs> so um, you know, a lot of times you will define a position, and this is how industry or federal government agencies can use this framework, you'll define a position and, it, and then you might bring in and say that position is going to utilize four or five of these different roles, right? It's not that you need 52 people, individual people to cover everything in cybersecurity. That's not, the, that's not what we're trying to achieve here. But it, but it really it formalizes this idea of what, what does it mean to be a cybersecurity expert in a particular area? What are those skills and abilities you need to, to have to be able to do a, a particular type of position 
with a number of roles. And that's really what this is all about. That also means you don't need 52 different types of people if you don't need 52 different people in an organization. It just means there's a cohort of 52 abilities that however many people with however many different skills you have, you should have all of these 52. Am I on the right track? Yeah, you're on the right track. And of course, obviously, if you're a small organization, let's say a, a, a small a company, you're not going to be able to cover all of these. I mean, that's not that, that is not going to happen. Um, but you know, for large organizations, government agencies, it really can uh, support them in developing that ever critical need of, you know, here's the my IT security organization. Here are the positions that I need to have. So here are the skills and abilities based on the nice framework. Um, and then it allows you to do a gap analysis, right? I mean, here's the skills that I have in my staff. Where do I have gaps? And what's really nice about this is, you know, it's still maturing, but this idea that educational organizations, universities and the like are aligning to this framework. A lot of the certification providers, the, you know, the training companies and the like that offer training to cybersecurity are aligning to the framework. So if I'm taking a course or I'm getting a, a master's degree in cybersecurity, you know, I've got a much better appreciation for how it lines up against these different roles within the uh, NICE framework. That gap analysis that you mentioned a moment ago I, m strikes me as maybe the most important element of this, Richard, because if you know what you don't have, you can then, whether you're a, a contractor, a vendor, or a, a government organization, you can decide okay, do we want to develop that in-house? Do we want to own that in-house? Or do we want to just buy it from somebody? Right, exactly. And that, that's a very good point. I mean, and a lot of times you can't hire the talent. I mean, like, let's take forensics. I think it's a good example where it probably doesn't make sense for most organizations to have a cybersecurity forensics expert on staff. You know, that's the kind of person that would look at a breach and, and really understand what happened and reconstruct what was going on. So that's expertise you can buy from the outside. Um, so there's a good example to your point of how do you fill these gaps? You probably can't do it all in-house or very few organizations can, but at least you know where you've got gaps now. And so you can go out and, and arrange to, to find the right expertise when you need it. What was the evaluation process like, the uh, kind of landscape exploration that you and your colleagues uh, did to make sure that, okay, these are the 52 and this is pretty comprehensive. We can be pretty confident that we've got pretty much all of the skills that one should have in an organization to be able to succeed. Well, you know, and I, I have to, you know, Rodney Peterson's the uh, actual director of NICE, and I think he's done a nice job, nice job yeah. over the last See, you're doing it too years now. Uh, of, of really uh, coalescing a, um, an ecosystem of, of industry I mean, together with uh, academia, uh, together with uh, government agencies, both at the uh, federal and, and state and local level, um, you know, it's an evolving field, right? So you're never done. I mean, this thing isn't stopped. Uh, but I, I, I think they've done a nice job of, of getting a comprehensive framework in place. And now it's a question of continuing to evolve that framework and build on that framework. And there's always questions and discussions going on about, okay, in a particular area, do we have it right? How are things changed? Uh, it, so it's a constantly evolving thing. But now that we've got the ecosystem built and we've got a, a lot of people involved in this, to me, and the reason I'm, I wanted to talk to you about it on this show was the fact that 
you know, not many people, you know, I go around and ask people, you know, about NICE, and, and there's still a lot of people in cybersecurity that have either no knowledge of it, or they just have a passing knowledge. And I think we need to change that, because there's no other framework that I'm aware of like it in the world. And it, it really should be the standard that we use in, in defining the positions and roles within cybersecurity. Uh, something that you may not be aware of is that you did it again. You, you did the nice dad joke again. And, and I guess in this case, we probably can't help ourselves. So I should stop flagging them. What What's the benefit to the community of greater awareness? When more people know about this, the way that you just described, you would like them to, Richard, what makes the cybersecurity community well, better as a result it, of it? Yeah, of course. Everything then spirals upward in a positive way. So if you've got more people that are, are telling uh, universities or telling um, organizations that offer cybersecurity certifications, hey, how do you align with a nice framework? Um, if you've got more people that are trying to enter the field that know about it, that are studying it, in order to be able to define the kinds of cybersecurity expertise they wanted to, to develop, that that makes everybody more aware and puts, if you want, more pressure on all the organizations involved in the ecosystem to align with the framework. And to me, that's the that's the real beauty of this. When you can get that to really work well, that to me shows that you've matured cybersecurity. Because right now, as you probably know, I still think we're not in a very mature state. It's very difficult if you're entering the field, for instance, you know, what what courses should I take? What kind of certification should I aim to get in cybersecurity? And there's not as enough guidance and, and it's not not enough uniformity, in my view, Francis, uh, at this time. So, again, we need a guiding light and a set of principles and uh, and a set of tools. And I, and I believe the NICE framework is, is where we should point to get that. When you say we're not in a mature state, I don't think anybody would disagree with you about that, Richard. What beside this framework will help drive that toward, drive us toward a more mature state, do you think? Well, there's, there's other things that are at play here that, that, that the NICE community is trying to to uh, uh, propose um, and push forward. And, you know, just one example would be this idea of having some type of electronic wallet that holds your credentials. I mean, and credentials are a lot more than, for instance, just your educational degree. A lot of us have gotten certifications. Um, there's these concepts of having badges. Um, there's even the concept of how do you describe your work experience? I mean, if I've been on the SOC floor for four years, let's say, doing operations and cybersecurity, I've learned a lot doing that. How does that, how do you capture that in a set of credentials? So this idea of having more uniformity about credentialing, and in fact, uh, the I'm in the Transform Working Group, um, and we've, we've got a project underway looking at just this. How do we have better uniformity and quality of credentials across the board in cybersecurity? Um, and, and how do you, how do you, capture that? How do you document that in a way that can be leveraged uh, by employers, leveraged by the individuals themselves, leveraged by educational institutions? So there's a good example of turning this into more than just a framework, 
but turn it into a tool set, if you will, or a set of tools that can be used uh, across the industry. Richard Spires, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the NICE framework in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Wednesday's show, High-Risk Contracts for Low-Risk Work. Tim DiNapoli of the Government Accountability Office explains on Wednesday afternoon's Daily Scoop podcast. you find it at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Telework Metrics and Cost Savings Act is under consideration in the House of Representatives again. Congressman Jerry Connolly and John Sarbanes say the bill would institutionalize gains federal government telework made during the pandemic. Ed DeSev is coordinator of the Agile Government Center at the National Academy of Public Administration. He's former deputy director for management at the Office of Management and Budget, among other leadership roles. Ed, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The first thing I thought of when I read through this bill and the press release that uh, Congressman Connolly put out about it is there's an awful lot here to track for both OPM and agencies. Is that a good idea at a time when they're already tracking plenty of things and they've got a lot of work on their plate already? Welcome, Ed. Thanks, Francis. Glad to be with you again. Uh, To answer your question, I think the answer is yes. Why? Because the growth of telework over the last five years, and I don't have good statistics. I tried to find them on the website at OPM and couldn't really find them. Uh, The growth of telework is significant, and we see it not just in the government, but around the private sector. So the real question is, how do we do it well? How do we be more effective in our work as a result of doing it? And can we achieve cost savings? And so I think the questions that are asked in the bill are terrific. Now, the idea of monitoring and reporting and another report and so on, um, it may be that we can do that in a more streamlined way. There may be a dialogue between Congress and the agencies that can occur, but the idea of codifying the ability to do telework and the savings and increased efficiencies that can occur. Let me tell you a simple story. Uh, A friend of mine works in a major downtown agency. He is an SES. And when he has to commute, it takes him on a bad day on the Metro. I guess there are a few of those. It takes him over an hour and a half to get from his house to his office. So he's spending three hours a day unproductively riding the Metro. And then he walks to work after that. So I, I can't say that, that that's productive time. Now, should he come in every day? I don't think so, but maybe once a week, maybe twice a week, uh, depending on his supervisory responsibilities and his relationship to his own uh, supervisor. There's a need for socialization in work. There's no question about that. So that pure telework can happen. I've got a, a friend who is in a pure telework capacity. Uh, she oversees... Uh, various requests for approval of documents and really doesn't need to be anywhere else. So anyway, I'm for the bill, for the idea, and we need to figure out what to do next about telework. I didn't mean to turn this into an addition of what's going on inside Ed's brain, but I'm really curious what (laughs) data in particular you were looking for when you went to the OPM website. What data were you trying to find, not to pick on them because it wasn't available, but I'm just curious, what are the kinds of data that uh, the agency should be making available? Well, we know, for example, that only about 10 to 15% of the workforce, uh, excluding the military, is located in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. 
the balance <clears throat> um, somewhere between 1.7 and 1.8 million people are located around the country and some of them overseas. So question number one is how much teleworking is occurring? Question number two is where is it occurring? Question number three is what kind of jobs are most susceptible to telework at the moment? Those are the three sets of data I was looking for. And it may have been, I, I just uh, started doing it yesterday, it may have been my lack of understanding of the, the database that OPM provides. But knowing the answer to those three questions, where is it occurring, who's doing it, et cetera, uh, I think is, is essential if we're gonna have increased telework. How would you use that data to make those decisions and to decide what level of effectiveness we have now and what level of effectiveness is desirable in the future and what exactly that effectiveness encompasses, Ed? Boy, Francis, you don't ask easy questions, do you? <laughs> well, that's why I have you, because you can answer <laughs> the, the tough the, ones. The first question is, I would go back to the Evidence Act. I realize that's uh, 2018, so that's a long time ago. I think Conley was one of the sponsors of the Evidence Act. And I would say, how do we first pilot in what places what's going on? Let's figure out in depth in a certain number of places. So I would choose those places using a somewhat randomized sample across the federal workforce and ask agencies if they're willing to participate in understanding what's going on, how much it's costing, how people feel about it, how supervisors feel about it, how individuals feel about it, and potentially if we can do it, how customers feel about it. I tried to run the pilot quickly so that we we wouldn't have a you know a five-year randomized control trial, but try to get as much data as I could across the map of the federal workforce to see what's working and what's not working in the view of the people who are really doing it. That sounds remarkably like what something who would be coordinator of the Agile Government Center at Napa would propose, a fast uh, uh, pilot where you can get results and data quickly. Um, we, we think so. We think the speed is really important, but we also think that um, reaching out to customers, that reaching out to the public as appropriate, that having um, empowered teams to do things is really important. There's a whole, uh, a whole framework that we have, um, but we would use the actual techniques, yes, in this circumstance. One of those big three that you mentioned a moment ago was what jobs are susceptible to telework, Ed? Is determining that an art or a science? Can can one or a group of people sit down and say, yes, this one definitely is. No, this one definitely isn't. There's got to be a gray area that will be harder, if not hard, to uh, to discern at least quickly, I would think. I think that's right. and I, But I think that once we discern quickly what is and isn't, then we can spend time doing analytics about the gray area. But let's get the first two done first. Okay, this uh, direct interaction with individuals, diagnosticians, um, can they do that on a telework basis or do they have to be in clinics? I don't know. Research, clinical research. I don't want to get down the list, but you get, get the sense. I don't think you can do research on the genome at home. I, I just... I have a hard time with it, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are things you can do at home. So let's figure out what it is. Let's sort them. Once we've sorted them, let's forget about those that we don't think are susceptible. Let's uh, empower people to do things to uh, move forward 
with the telework that is susceptible. And then let's uh, do some analytics on the gray area to see if the gray becomes white or black. How much of this work, discussion, and so on has just been overcome by the events of the pandemic? Uh, I mean, I, I have not been able to identify any federal government organization where somebody has said, our mission absolutely went to nothing, absolutely failed, because we all had to work remotely. That just I, I just can't identify that. So it strikes me that we've gained years and years and years and maybe more of data over the last two years just by the sheer speed at which we had to go from uh, the traditional way of working to a completely different way of working. That's absolutely true. And the question is, what do we learn from that data? What have we learned from that data? Um, did it tell us that um, certain functions actually work better if they're done remotely? Uh, or did it tell us that it's impossible, almost impossible, to do certain things? Obviously, being a remote prison guard is not a good idea. Um, I, I don't know that you can do that. Now, it may be that in certain circumstances that you can reduce the number of people on board by using cameras and uh, communications devices. I don't know. But in, but in, but our database is there. We've got the data. Now what we have to do is figure out what to do with it. The last item on the press release that Congressman Connolly put out about this is that this bill would clarify the definition of telework and ensure that remote work is considered a form of teleworking. I didn't understand that nuance Ed, at the beginning of the pandemic. I understand it now. And I wonder how much should we be thinking about remote work and telework differently and how much should we be thinking about them in the same way? In some cases, uh, people work remotely because they're remote. If you're a, a Forest Service employee in Alaska, it's unlikely that you have anything other than a remote, a remote base of some sort. It may be your vehicle is your base. Um, and then telework is that which enables remote work by using telecommunications such as we're doing right now. So there, I'm, I'm sure a certain number of people who work remotely without telework. Uh, I'm not sure how many and who they are. I'm not sure that that's the most important thing to clarify. The most important thing to clarify is when we assign telework to individuals, how, how do we assign it and how well do they perform in doing it? Um, I think remote work is a subset of general work, of general labor. But I don't know that it's an important one. And I, and I, first of all, I want to say, uh, I, I think Jerry Conley is a, a, an excellent public servant. I wish I'd been able to work with him when I was in government. Unfortunately, the uh, the committee was headed by a particular congressman from California who was a very nice guy, but his staff member was Virginia Thomas, and Virginia was very difficult. Uh, so we had a lot of hearings and a lot of interaction. I wish Jerry Conley had done it. It's great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about that bill and what it might do in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The connection between identity management and cyber will be in focus at the Okta Gov Identity Summit 2022. Government and industry leaders will be at the conference the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, June 23rd. You can find a link to learn more and sign up for it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
One of the first technology modernization fund projects awarded is finished. Agriculture Department Chief Information Officer Gary Washington told you on this program a few weeks back the department has paid back the money it got for a cloud adoption project. Dave Peters is Associate Chief Information Officer of the Digital Infrastructure Services Center at the Agriculture Department. He says the clouds impacted operations all over the agency. If you think about the strategic plans that have been in place the last five years at USDA, they've called for improvements in customer experience. They've called, uh, they've called for increased data sharing. We've used the cloud for the last three plus years to do that. So if you think about our farmers.gov platform, if you think about some of our inspection programs at APHIS and otherwise, we're using the cloud to improve the customer experience. But it's not only about the customer experience, which, which is important, of course. Once we get that data, we need to process it, share it, analyze it, uh, and we need to make good decisions. And we're using the cloud in all of those ways. Now, with our more recent uh, strategic plan, we're now addressing climate and we're addressing equity. And we're using cloud to do that as well. With the shared services nature of cloud, we can actually take a look at the shared services platforms that we're using and measure carbon footprint reduction. My disk organization has recently established a three-ton carbon reduction per year goal as part of our strategic plan. Um, and so we're excited about the future. We're excited about continuing to leverage cloud to address all of our strategic objectives across USDA. Just a quick sidebar, Dave, a lot of the, the terms that you use there, you brought with you knowledge at least about from GSA to USDA, shared services and the cloud and the centers of excellence in particular. What kind of visibility or maybe advantage has that given you, do you think, in meeting the goals that the USDA has laid out in a strategic plan? You know, when I got to USDA, I found, and I saw that when I was here with the COEs, there was a tremendous baseline of cloud knowledge. You know, I think one of the advantages I came from GSA was I worked with other agencies. I was able to do some benchmarking, um, you know, and that helped really with some of the change management activities that we've, we've deployed. But, you know, USDA had been working on modernization programs since I came over. So, uh, you know, they were, they had many of these initiatives already in process. How has USDA evaluated the challenges that it's trying to meet, the problems it's trying to solve mm -hmm. for citizens, and then applied cloud to get the results that it wants to do that? You know, we're very much a customer experience oriented, uh, oriented agency. So it's not just about, you know, processing uh, loans. I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our business in terms of loans, insurance. Uh, benefits distribution, you know, but we want to know at the transactional level what are what are our customers feeling, um, how easy if, how easy is it for them, and so we're taking a look at a lot of different measurement processes, leveraging cloud technology, and and industry partner expertise uh, to bake those into how we deploy this technology. It sounds like you're at a point then where you can evaluate, this is where we are today, this is where we were at some point in the past, and see what the, the trajectory has been. Um, what are some examples of things that you can do now that maybe you couldn't do before or couldn't do as well before, Dave? That's, you know what, we really are at an inflection point. Uh, we've proven that we can deploy this type of technology. We've proven that we can improve individual customer experiences and applications and programs. You know, really the inflection po point now is about tying all that data together, tying all those interfaces together, uh, you know, 
customers look at what they experience online, whether it's Capital One or Etsy or Amazon, and they want that from USDA as well. So, you know, what we're doing is we're partnering with, uh, with our Office of Customer Experience. We're partnering extensively with our CDO, you know, and we're measuring, you know, we're measuring how we're using data, what the customers are thinking, and then we're sharing that. Uh, we've established new working groups, new advisory boards uh, here within USDA. And so everyone's involved. It's absolutely a team sport. What have you learned lessons-wise, both either at GSA or at USDA, that you could share with other organizations, roadblocks that you weren't expecting that popped up along the way, or successes yeah. that you had that maybe you didn't anticipate um, that other agencies could learn from? It's funny. You, with the new technology, you always think it's technical hurdles, but it's really focus on the business, focus on the customer, focus on the outcomes. You know, if you're if you're supporting a transaction in terms of a specific program, what are the transaction? What are the benefits? What are the outcomes? Uh, and try to identify identify the you know the variables up front that you need to measure that performance in terms of customer satisfaction, first time acceptance rate, uh, transaction interval, and build that into the design, build that into the deployment, and then measure it. So it's not just a it's it's you know the customer experience is first and foremost. But systemically, how do we gather the data so that we can look at that over time and continuously improve it? You know, I think the other lesson we the other lesson we've learned is, uh, you know, I've kind of downplayed the technical, but there's really a value engineering approach as well. Uh, you know, so don't be afraid to spend a little bit up front to work with an industry partner. You know, to take a look at that design. Am I buying? Am I buying the right amount of licenses? Am I buying? You know, am I building for the appropriate capacity, am I overbuying? Uh, and, you know, can I re, can I actually, uh, you know, based on projected adoption, you know, is there, are there better amounts I can buy better uh, so to ensure that the performance is optimal? You're laying out a record of uh, progress and achievement, but it doesn't sound like you're finished. What comes next for the cloud <laughs> at USDA, Dave? Yeah, what comes next, I call it the USDA uh, digital enterprise. And so what we really want to do is link together data. You know, we've started a, a, a partnership with our CDO we call enterprise data management. Uh, and we're looking at how we can link data together more effectively, more efficiently to improve that customer experience and improve transactions across USDA. Uh, with that, I think we'll come improved architecture. Um, you know, more so that, you know, customers will have better experience, you know, and that'll really take us, we've, like I said, we've proven that we can adopt cloud. Uh, we want to make it more effectively, more efficient and drive value to the, to the citizens of this country. Dave Peters of the Department of Agriculture. You can find a link to see the video of that conversation anytime in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.